Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of Ask the CEO with Abraham Gatile. Today, I'd like to introduce a very special guest. He's the president and CEO of Berkeley Veritronic System, a leading provider of advanced world-class wireless test and security solutions. Since the beginning of his tenure in 1989, the company's product line of wireless test and security instruments has increased to over 100 products with a core focus on Wi-Fi, cellular, WiMAX, LTE, IoT, and advanced radio devices. His current focus is on the development of cell phone detection tools used to enforce a no cell phone policy in various markets, including government, corporate, military, educational, correctional, and law enforcement. He is a highly sought after expert on the topic of cybersecurity and wireless technology for media appearances and commentary. He's often seen on TV shows like ABC News, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera America, CBS, CGTN America, CNBC, CNN, Fox Business News, Good Morning America, Inside Edition, and many more, as well as many popular radio shows. He's a regular contributor on Huffington Post, Fortune Magazine, and many business blog sites. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome the one and only Scott Schober. Welcome, Scott. Hey, great to be on. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it. Yeah, great having you. How's your day going? Day's going good. Crazy as usual, but that's a good crazy, I think. <laughs> awesome. Uh, where are you uh, logging in from? Uh, I'm in Metuchen, New Jersey. We have a mini studio here right at our corporate headquarters in Metuchen. That is fantastic. Yes, I've actually worked out of Metuchen. Nice place. Yeah, ni- nice little town. It's quaint, which is nice. Uh, we have the train station here, so it's easy to get in, in and uh, to the city, which is great also. So popular place, certainly in central New Jersey. Yeah, and you know, the central New Jersey is becoming almost like the Silicon Valley of uh, the New York area, right? Yeah, we, we find there's a huge amount of customers that are spread in this central area, which is good. So if you're building business or trying to grow, especially in the, in the tech area, this is a great spot to be. Yeah, absolutely. So Scott, cybersecurity is such a hot topic today. And together with cybersecurity, we have the wireless and IoT technology that will also come to play with uh, security. Tell me a little bit about some of the things you're involved with and uh, what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. And, And maybe to help out, just give you a brief background or to kind of set the stage where we are from the world of wireless and cybersecurity and kind of how they intersect, because that that kind of puts us where we are right now on the map. Um, Back in the mid to late 80s, probably many of us remember the days where you'd see executives walking around with those big giant brick cell phones when they first came out. Well, we got involved heavily with company down in Washington, developing some of the earliest wireless test tools for signal propagation. So basically, our test tools could determine where the spots are best to place the cell towers, what angle, what height, place the antenna, so on and so forth, so cell phones could work. And that was the old days, analog uh, uh, cell phones, which was more straightforward, where calls would be handed off from tower to tower. So we built a lot of equipment there and started to learn what makes a phone tick, what makes it work under the hood, which was really exciting. And as the first generation led to the second generation and 3G, third generation into Uh, CDMA technology. Now we're in our fourth generation LTE and looking toward where the future is with the fifth generation. We continue to develop advanced test tools. 
the, the nice part about that is in the process of developing all these advanced tools, working with the carriers and, and other companies, we learn a lot of the vulnerabilities and where the weak spots are that uh, bad people will try to exploit. And in this case, there's a ton of bad people out there and they love to use wireless as the conduit to hack into companies. So that's kind of the bridge there that really got us into the, the, the position of educating people how to stay safe, how to use your mobile phone. And at the same time, we then became a target naturally as, as, as things happen. As you educate people to keep safe, the bad guys aren't very happy. So they had their sights on us, myself personally and the company, and we began to receive repeated hacks. And that really put us in the forefront of the cybersecurity and finding ways that we ourselves as a small business here in New Jersey could stay safe from hackers and educating other small business owners, companies, and individuals. So how do they stay safe so they too are not victims of hacks? Yeah, and I imagine that uh, the cyber hackers unwittingly helped you in your career. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, it got to the point where I found I was telling these stories over and over. Hey, don't do this, and here's how to stay safe using your credit card and online and privacy issues, so on and so forth. Everybody said, wow, that, that's really interesting. Why don't, you, why don't you write about that? And I said, well, I'm not really a writer. Well, you should write a book. And I'd hear it here, here, here. A lot of people started saying it. And finally, one day I rolled up my sleeves and started writing. And it, it took a while. Again, not being a professional writer, you learn quickly. It's a lot harder than it appears. And it took about two years from the, the very beginning when I was serious writing it to the, to the end of it. And the book was launched last year called Hacked Again. And that's opened up even more doors. And I often refer to uh, writing a book as kind of the modern business card. If you want to open doors up and you have a book, you now can share your experience and people can read about it on their own. And that's a wonderful way that they can understand what you went through, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and learn a lot. So I highly recommend to people that have expertise in a niche industry, take a shot, try writing about it, because it really will help other people that take the time to read it and absorb the material so they too can, can learn from your misfortunes, perhaps. <laughs> that's great advice. So, Scott, uh, tell me a little bit about how you work with clients and, and help them <coughs> ways. Oh, sure. A, a lot of times we're, we're thought of as a company where um, we provide a complete solution. So people will often come to us and say, hey, Scott, uh, I've got a particular problem in, in the industry and I need a company that can take care of it, that can solve the complete solution. And, and it could be a variety of different things. Uh, most of our tools that are really have taken off are handheld tools that are used to hunt down bad guys. So it could be a cell phone, perhaps in a secure area where cell phones are not allowed. Imagine a government secure facility that houses classified information and they do not allow any wireless there. Our tools will simply allow somebody to hunt down direction finding antenna attached. We could scan and look for whatever the particular a culprit is, be it in Bluetooth, in Wi-Fi, it could be a cell phone that somebody wants to bring into a facility. And, and, and why is it so dangerous? Because with a cell phone especially, you've got everything on there. You've got a camera on there. You've got an audio recording device on there. You've got memory. You've got email, texting. So you can take information that's proprietary, intellectual property. It could be a picture of a schematic or a building diagram. It could be anything. Snap a picture of that instantly you could send that out to anybody in the world within a matter of seconds. So that's an extremely 
huge threat on the radar, especially many DOD agencies are extremely concerned. There's some 10,000 plus SCIFs just spread out through the United States. A lot of these SCIFs use our tools to enforce a no wireless policy so they can constantly perform audits and sniff out and see if any Bluetooth threats come in, Wi-Fi threats, or somebody's trying to smuggle in a cell phone. And, and this is from an RF perspective, radio frequency perspective. So if a phone is transmitting, pinging to the tower, emailing, texting, any type of wireless communication, we can detect on that. We also have designed some unique tools that are slightly different. And these tools are called ferrous detection engines. And what there are is a portal system. And to me, this is really exciting. So many customers come up to us and they say, hey, Scott, we've got a problem. Some people are still sneaking phones in, but they're shutting them off. They're yeah. putting them in the airplane mode. They're taking the battery out and reassembling it later on so they could do whatever they need to do and then shut them off again. Is there any way to detect them? So we worked on it a while, it was a couple of years ago. And finally, we came up with ferrous detection which is a portal system, two poles, as you would envision any metal detector that you would walk through. And what it does is pick up on the minute particles, the ferrous particles inside of a mobile phone. If you look at the anatomy of a mobile phone, there's very little metal. So traditional metal detectors will actually not pick up mobile phones very well. If you cup a mobile phone at your midsection, if you put it in your sock, most metal detectors at an airport or jail or government facility will never detect the mobile phone. And that's how the bad guys will sneak those mobile phones in. And hence the development of this uh, uh, ferromagnetic detection system that we've developed. We've in, even been able to, in the world of prisons where um, contraband cell phones are very valuable, we've been able to stop inmates and visitors from smuggling contraband cell phones in. In one case, somebody actually swallowed it and it was lodged in their stomach. The first pass they walk through our, our uh, system, it's called the Sentry Hound, and the alert went off. And the guard said, wait, stop, go back, walk through again, went off again. And it was right at the midsection there, his belly. And they said, all right, strip your clothes off. They patted him down, searched him, still nothing. Walk through again, went off. They said, go down to medical, see if they had to extract it. And they x-rayed him and they saw, sure enough, there was a phone that swallowed there and it was stuck in the inmate's stomach. They probably would have killed him within a few days. So it was good that I guess we detected it and he didn't, wasn't able to pass it through his whole system there because it got lodged in there. But that's the extreme length that, that prisoners will go to to smuggle in contraband cell phones. In some cases, they'll get 500 to $1,000 to smuggle a phone into a prison. And oftentimes they'll use that to conduct business, uh, orchestrate other crimes, gang activities, smuggle drugs and other contraband in there. So it's a very sought after tool. Uh, there's rumors that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 plus cell phones throughout all the prison systems. That's really scary. So our tools are used there extensively to really eradicate, pull them out of the prisons. And some are covert solutions. Some are, as I mentioned, the Sentry Hound, where it's a portal system where all the inmates have to walk through. But very effective technology used to fighting those crimes. Wow, I, I can only imagine the different kinds of things you deal with on a regular basis. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so, Scott, you know, one of the things I noticed on your website, you have a, uh, a list of clients on there with a lot of prominent names, like the, the big names in the telecom industry, like Avaya and Cisco. 
And then we've got names like Apple, IBM, Microsoft. Um, besides wireless, what other kinds of products do you deal with that companies like those can benefit from? Yeah, most of those companies, it's usually an offshoot of some of our wireless products or some of the things that we've done before. A good example, uh, Pepsi-Cola. We've done a lot of work with them, I think first dating back to 1987, and they're still customer of ours today. In this case, we used to build a lot of the pen key accessories they would use for automated um, routes that they would drive. They would collect and say, okay, here's X number of cases of soda they would unload sign here on their computer, wire that back to headquarters so they could constantly track where all of the soda was at any point in time. We supported about 16,000 trucks at the time and another four to 6,000 trucks up in Canada. We actually built the accessories. So it was a huge, huge undertaking that lasted many, many years. More recently with Pepsi-Cola, interestingly, what they've done is they've equipped a lot of their vending machines with monitoring capabilities. So these are advanced sensors they put throughout their vending machine. It's got a cellular modem inside of the vending machine that then will call out wirelessly and report, what's the temperature? Is the door ajar? How much money is in there? Is stock getting low? Because they always want to have the competitive advantage from their friendly rival next door to make sure that machine is always stocked so they don't lose revenue, especially at college campuses or large companies that they have to continually go in and replenish the supplies and vending machines. Very, very critical when you're monitoring that. So having that wireless capability will allow them to stay ahead of the competition. So where does Berkeley come in? We developed a tool, which is really an M2M uh, installation tool. And what it does is it scans and looks for what carrier at a given spot has the best signal coverage. So imagine now you're placing a vending machine at a gas station, let's say, and you're not sure if you want to sign it up with is Verizon better coverage here or AT&T. Now you have a tool that you could press the button and a technician could look at it and say, ah, such and such has the best signal coverage right here. And it allows them the ability to move the antenna around that they ultimately will install connected to our instrument right now. And they can say, ah, here's the best spot to place the antenna. So it solves two major problems that uh, Pepsi had as well as many other companies Where's the best spot to install that cellular modem? Where's the best spot to place that antenna? And that allows them now to install thousands of vending machines that are equipped with these cellular modems and do it much faster and more accurately. And, and you could always ask yourself, why is this so important? What's the big deal if you guess wrong? Well, now if you guess wrong, you got to send the truck out. You got to pull out the cellular modem. You got to cancel a contract, put up a new contract. That costs hundreds and hundreds of dollars plus man hour, a truck roll can be very expensive for a large company. So you don't want to install a cellular modem that has fringe coverage right on the edge where it kind of works, doesn't work, or else the communications will be nothing but a headache. So it's important to use install tools such as our Squid, which is an IoT M2M installation tool to make sure you get it right the first time. Wow. So when you buy a can of soda, there's so much that goes into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Not only is it just a, a can of soda, but you're getting it at the right temperature. It makes sure that your payment is made. The whole process goes through A to Z and it's replenished before you ever have to worry about out of order or no vend because there's no soda there in stock. So a lot of things behind the scenes that I think they've done very intelligently and other rival companies are doing the same in that same industry there. The beverage industry, it's huge. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot more advancements, especially as IoT, the, the Internet of Things, really grows and allows us to take 
sensors and really this big data that's everywhere and interfacing that through, be it wireless or through the internet or whatever the conduit is, so companies have rich data so they can make better business decisions and that'll really affect their bottom line. That's the beauty of it all. And that's a perfect segue because IoT is also becoming a very hot topic right now. Um, and the way you just described it, this is a perfect use case for IoT in uh, retail and supply chain and you know, even manufacturing, pretty much every, every segment of the industry. Going back to security, you can't really say, well, let's just unplug and not connect to the internet because like that case that you mentioned with Pepsi, if we unplug, then we're making ourselves vulnerable to our competition who are doing it better and more cost-effective than us. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And you always have to balance. I always give the analogy. You have to look at the scenario before you plug into the internet or connect things from an internet of things perspective, and you have to balance security versus convenience. Because Everybody can argue IoT is extremely convenient. We love it. We love the ability to plug into the internet, get real-time data, get real-time feedback. And again, it could be a picture for our alarm system. Uh, for my house, I'm using a Nest thermostat connected through my, my Wi-Fi router. So I'm getting tons of information remotely to see that my house is not having its AC running if I'm on vacation or this or that. So great data, cost savings, convenience, but you have to balance that out and ask yourself, how secure is that when you're connecting into your, your Wi-Fi router? Is your password secure? Uh, what happens if there are vulnerabilities that are discovered, which there have been with Nest and many others? Is there a way that the company can actually upload firmware? Is there an upload path so you can get an upgrade to that to prevent future hacks and vulnerabilities when they're discovered? Uh, many times, much of the IoT, and, and we've seen this in some of the cases, the, the, the major hacks with the DDoS attack recently, where they were using these low-cost cameras made in mass quantity over in Asia, and they were able to exploit them because they really had no upgrade path. And that's a difficulty. When you plug a low-cost camera, there's no way to upload that firmware, and many people just have it using the factory default passwords there, connected into their wireless networks, not even realizing it. Now suddenly those become IoT bots, hundreds of thousands of them that can now, with just a single command, start flooding traffic to a particular website that the culprit wants to take down, and they call that a, a DDoS attack. It can cripple companies. It can knock companies completely off, so you can't even access their website. And if you think about it, most of the businesses, I know our business, we've received multiple DDoS attacks when we were targeted. And I talk a lot about that in my book. We have a store. We'll regularly do thirty dollars to $40,000 of e-commerce through our store. When your website is down, that could cripple a small business. It can cripple any business. So you make sure that you're monitoring it, that you can mitigate any of those things and patch it up so there are no vulnerabilities. Very important to minimize especially DDoS attacks, which often they use the, uh, the IoT bots there. So we've got to be all careful, all business owners these days. Yeah, absolutely. So Scott, how did you get started uh, with all this? Uh, myself, my background, really the, our, our business is 
45 years old this year. It was founded by my father, who's still our CTO, but semi-retired. I always joke with him. He was by earlier today. And uh, so I grew up around technology. He also worked at the uh, Atari. He was the VP of the labs there. Many other companies he consulted for and had a couple ownerships in other companies. So I grew up always working at Berkeley Veritronics. So I, I've done everything here up through uh, really grade school, middle school, high school, through college, always had an interest in the business and was able to do things from electronics and programming and things on the business side. So I've always been around technology and innovation, which is exciting. Back in the uh, seventh grade, I was uh, asked to be the president of the computer club. And that really got me started working with computers, programming, hacking, copying games. So I kind of got a little bit of the hacking side, the techie side, building robots, uh, a nice crisscross or intersection of all different things tech. And I still do that today. And I always recommend to people, whatever you do in life, whatever your career is, if it's something you're passionate about and you love, then you can do it forever. And you don't worry about the money side of things or anything else. That will hopefully fall into place. There'll always be some challenges for every business uh, or every person. But if you can focus on your passion, what you really enjoy and love, you'll do well. And you don't regret going to work every day. You kind of get excited about it because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what new challenges are coming out. For us, what, what, what the next wireless thread is or what solution we can develop or what product we can launch or how we can educate uh, somebody in a particular area. Those things keep me going and get me excited. So I write about it. I, I present as a subject matter expert. Um, we develop new ideas and we play in the, the sandbox in the lab downstairs and try new things that other companies have not done before. And it's great because we're able to now produce products, develop solutions for companies the likes of, of NASA, uh, selling security tools to NSA and FBI and Secret Service and all the way up to the White House. That to me is exciting. We're keeping people safe. We're innovating. We're having fun doing it. And you can't beat that, I think. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, from one techie to another, um, what kind of toys do you have in your sandbox? Oh, <laughs> too many. I, I tend to buy one of everything. When products come out, I love to play with them take them apart, tinker, find the vulnerabilities. Uh, I've been asked to, to review a lot of products as well and help companies understand where there's weaknesses, so how they can improve their products, so a lot of different areas. Um, one of our cool projects that we've been doing uh, lately, which I'm real excited about, we've been doing a fair amount in distracted driving, huge problem. And the more and more I start doing research and studying this, I'm frustrated because everybody focuses on education. Don't, don't drive with your phone. Don't text while you're driving. That's a big problem. And you look at the statistics, they're alarming. People still do it. Every day on my short little commute to work, I usually count three or four people that are on their phone and they're busy texting and doing this and almost crash into me or other people on the road. So you see why it's such a big problem. Law enforcement struggling to try to stop it. Um, drivers, even though they're aware of it, they've gotten a place in, I feel. So what we've been doing in the, the sandbox, tinkering around with is, taking our, our cell phone detection engine that was popular in handheld tools that's going to government facilities and correctional facilities, re-spinning that and now using it in a different light. And what we've done is we've coupled it with actually road signs. So now if a car is approaching and we detect the vehicle's movement toward us, 
we're scanning all the different cell phone bands, be it 3G, 4G technology, so all the bands that our phones popularly work at, and we couple it with a directional antenna. And as the car approaches, and the signal strength transmitting from their mobile to the tower exceeds a certain threshold that we set, then we can trigger a sign and it will flash and it will tell them to not text and drive. So it's more of a deterrent, it's a detection and deterrent system, but it's more effective than just a static sign that says don't text and drive because it's really actively scanning continually and looking for a driver that's approaching and texting while they're driving. There's a few challenges, of course, with technology on that, but those are the, the exciting parts, trying to find ways to overcome those to make sure that we're detecting vehicles that are approaching only, combining that with radar, combining that with an advanced uh, detection algorithm that scans really fast, and an alert mechanism to get drivers to uh, comply with the law. And I kind of liken it to, if you've ever drive, driven down the road, I'm sure you haven't, and I probably haven't either, even though we probably all have, driving down the road and that sign flashes and it says your speed is you know 48 miles an hour and you're in a 25 and you're like ah what's your natural inclination first thing you do is probably let up on the gas pedal and slow down or if you're a chronic speeder what do you do you look around and see if there's a cop ready to catch you right one of those two things but what is it doing it's helping hopefully helping you change your behavior it, it interrupts it's, what you're doing exactly and i think that's powerful when you have the ability to change behavior of somebody, and again, it's motivated by fear. I don't want to go to court. I don't want points on my license. I don't want a ticket. It, it, it's accomplishing something more important. You're driving slower because that happens to be a school zone, and there's kids that could get hurt. But we're so complacent with our routine, we forget. The same concept I'm trying to apply in this product that we're developing if we could deter people and help train them the dangers of driving with a cell phone. Now, obviously, this could go another step further. Could we couple it with a camera that's triggered there? Sure. Or maybe an automated uh, ticketing process? Sure, that would really upset people, of course, kind of like the red light cameras. But I think step one is really more as a deterrent. Trust people that they're going to do the right thing, but give them a friendly reminder so they put the phones down and stop texting while driving. So we're gonna be doing some pilots in the coming months with some of the different um, groups here locally in New Jersey, as well as some of the groups down in Washington, DC to promote this using technology and innovation to deter people from constantly texting while driving. So I'm really excited about this. I think it's gonna go a long way and hopefully not just helping you know, solve the problem because nothing will be 100% but it'll be a good step toward that deterring people from texting so much. And who knows, maybe it'll lead, lead to a good business model as well. But more importantly, I think we're going to do some good in, in stopping people from killing people by driving and, and just being distracted. It's a tremendous problem that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. Now, have you gotten involved with autonomous vehicles? You know what? That, that's becoming hotter and hotter. And I'm often interviewed on that, the technology of that, how disruptive is it? Will it actually happen? So it's more of a higher level overview. What's my pulse on it? Where do I think it's going? I think the concept at first, when I, when I started looking at it and learning about it and doing research on it a few years ago, honestly, I thought it was kind of stupid. As I learn more about it and I start to see some of the smart sensors and the way that they're interacting, and really more importantly, the statistics, again, when we get behind the wheel, 
we're all creatures of habit. We turn on our radio station, we're drinking our coffee, we're texting, we're doing all the things we shouldn't, putting makeup on, getting dressed, people shaving, all these crazy things are going on because it's routine. People are not good with routine. What's good with routine? Really robotics. That's where robotics has excelled and helped things, not just for throughput, but really for safety, where people are just complacent. Our brain almost tends to, to shut off or the synapses aren't communicating as well when we go from point A to B and we do the same thing over and over and over again. It's kind of scary. So autonomous vehicles, I think, are kind of exciting because they're taking that that, that same old thing, the rudimentary drive from point A to point B that we've done hundreds of times, and now making it safer, hopefully safer if these sensors do work and they can interact. They can navigate us there. They can control the speed. They could provide alternate routes with all the GPS navigation, so on and so forth. Now, the other side of that coin, my concern, is looking at it from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, that's where it's a little scary. If you wanted to be a bad guy, can you affect the navigation? Sure. Can you take uh, some high-powered lasers and shine it at the LIDAR system on top of the uh, uh, car that's helping to navigate that and keep from crashing into other things? That could cause real havoc. So the, the bad guys are also looking how they can exploit this. So we have to be very careful, not just to release technology. It's not first to market here that will succeed. To me, it's developing innovative technology that will keep us safe and that will be secure where it can't be easily hacked, where it cannot be exploited, where there are vulnerabilities, because there are certainly many of them there. And I know it's early in the game, so it's hard to, to point at all the specific vulnerabilities there and make fun of it. But I think when, when it becomes part of the conversation and it's heightened, the manufacturers will slow down and not be so quick to push it to market. The analogy is IoT, what we were just talking about. IoT Trillions and trillions of devices. The number keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger every day. How many devices are going to be connected to the internet? Uh, one person told me that the, in a couple of years, it's supposed to be every person will have about 50 devices within their home that are connected to the internet. You know, I, I recently asked a couple of family members that are also into tech, how many devices do they have that are connected to the internet? And you know what? They were close to 50 devices. I was blown away. I did that myself. And I was like, yikes, I didn't realize I had so many things that are connected within our lives to the internet. So those, that statistic is real. The scary part about it is when we think about our smartwatches and Fitbits and all these smart toasters and toilets and everything that's everything from practical to beneficial to useless, they all have weak points and vulnerabilities. Some are very secure, some are extremely insecure. And that's where we have to, again, balance privacy versus um, um, convenience there and ask ourselves, maybe it's not so good that we plug this into the internet or have this wireless device that provides feedback. Is it really needed? So I've even backed off a little bit and I ask myself some basic questions and I, and I always encourage consumers and business owners, ask yourself the questions. Is there a path to upgrade this when there are vulnerabilities discovered? If you see no clear path and the manufacturer says, hey, no, it's, you get what you get, it's in there, it's safe, don't worry about it, pause. Stop real quick because eventually it will be compromised and then you'll be a victim of it and there's not much that you can do. That may be the conduit, how they get to your home computer or your, your computer network at your company, whatever the case may be. So we really want to slow down and not just be plugging everything into the internet without spending a little bit of time asking ourselves, is this encrypted? Does this have an upgrade path? How secure is this device? 
Has it been tested or certified? Most devices you'll find are not tested and certified for any level of security or cybersecurity and compliance there. So a lot of questions come out to me naturally. Yeah, for sure. So Scott, as you were building your business, what were some of the challenges, some of the ups and downs that you experienced along the way? Wow, I, I think they've, they've always been there and will never go away. It's finding novel ways to work around the challenges. And I, I kind of look at myself a little bit in, in this business that way. We're a little under 30 engineers here. We do everything under one roof in, in that we're assembling boards. We've got a machine shop here with CNC capability so we can machine any part. We lay out schematics, printed circuit boards and wiring, top panel assembly, testing, RF design, digital design, DSP. We're doing software, C++, and microchip, and we're, we're all over the FPGA. So we're doing a lot of stuff under one roof. And with that becomes naturally a lot of challenges. Um, how do you retain people? How do you make it attractive to stay at a company for years? Fortunately, we have good retention rate and our employees do stay here for a long period of time. So what do you gotta do? You gotta do things differently. You gotta provide them um, with some incentives. And it's not always just a dollar. Sometimes it's the work environment. Sometimes it's giving them liberty to play in the sandbox and come up with new ideas to test different things from different disciplines and challenging them. Sometimes I'll come up with a crazy idea and I'll say, guys, do you think this could be done? And I say, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard of. No, it's a waste of time. So I wonder if you could do it. What if you took this and this and, and tried this? Well, that's interesting. Let me try it. I come back a week later and I say, Scott, look what we just did. Remember that crazy idea you had? Maybe it's not so crazy. We just came up with something we never even thought of. Next thing you know, that, that snowballs into a finished product that helps solve somebody's problem. So sometimes innovation is not the path that you would expect it to be. Many people think of a, you know, spending a ton of money and creating a super lab with access to all this technology. Sometimes that, that works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's actually taking people with different backgrounds and skill sets, bringing three different people and forming a mini team, a think tank, an A team that can go be challenged, something that's not been done and that everybody says that can't be done. And they may spend their wheels and spend some money and spend some time, but the unknown, the output of that, that's what excites me because we learn things. We take that technology, then we integrate it into our product. Sometimes it's patented, sometimes it's licensed, sometimes you tell nobody what your secret sauce is and just keep it locked in there. It depends on what formula used for success there. But many things we've developed right here are the results of what I call the unknown, playing in the sandbox. And that to me is the funnest part about it because you don't know what you're gonna get. So you have to balance that between what pays the bills and shipping product and finishing designs and keeping customers happy. And, and I think word of mouth is a very powerful thing still. Uh, with the world of the internet, people say anything. You know, they, they, they claim this, they say that, people post fake reviews on things, all of that stuff. If you could see through the fluff as a consumer, as a business owner on the internet, and instead, if you listen to what somebody says about a company, about, about what their capability is, of, if, if somebody says, hey, Berkeley Varitronics saved us tens of thousands of dollars by this product, that word of mouth 
And that business is extremely powerful. It, to me, it's more powerful than spending tens of thousands of dollars in magazine ads and all that other stuff. So our, our business philosophy is really to focus on the customer, the problems that they have. And if we can deliver consistently, provide them the best solution, provide them the best service, they're going to come back for more. It, it's similar parallel. I look and I, I can't take credit to say I'm a Steve Jobs or anybody like Apple, but if you look at their success, they really take the time to focus on the problem solution. And I find that fascinating. If you study Apple and understand, obviously the most successful company in the world, more money in the bank than any other company. And yeah, Amazon's catching up in Google and maybe a few others there. But in reality, they're not the first to market with most things. Did you notice that? And I find that fascinating. Yeah. Two or three other companies with technology that comes out, and maybe it's augmented reality. You know, Google's to market, and this company's to market, so on and so forth. Apple is usually a little bit later, but when they get it, it it's, it's really encompassing their ecosystem. So what does that tell you? The customers that are loyal Apple users are going to embrace that technology. They're waiting for Apple to do it and to do it right. They're not just trying to grab it from third parties and jam it together and it kind of works, doesn't work. There's not a lot of loyalty outside there for the world of mobile phones. People are going to contract that'll save them the most bucks and they jump a lot. Whereas it tends to be fairly loyal customer base toward Apple products. And yes, I am biased because I, I, I am a, uh, a longtime Apple user since back in uh, 1976 when I was a young kid and have been using their products up till today and continue to use them. And, bought their stock, study them, and, and love following the company and their innovation. Um, but they do it right, and you can't knock them. Even though they're criticized for many things, they, they, they don't fail that much, I think. So I think it's a good learning lesson for other CEOs, small business owners, entrepreneurs, innovators of all types. Look at the successes and how they do it. It's a very disciplined approach toward business. And it's, again, not always thinking about themselves, I don't think. It ultimately hits their pocket and hits it really well when they sell a product and they launch it. But it's because they're listening and they're in tune with what their customers want. That leads ultimately to the best success. Yeah, and it's like what you said about word of mouth because it's that word of mouth that keeps loyal followers coming back to Apple. It does. And, and it's very powerful, that formula, I think. So I always try to encourage people, take some time, read about it, study them a little bit, analyze their products. As you start to, you realize that the ease of use, the ecosystem is something that's very important. I, I focus on it too from the security perspective. When I use Apple products, I feel far more secure. When I hear everybody saying, oh, there's another compromise with Andrew OS, blah, blah, blah. Oh, Windows again got nailed. <laughs> no surprise. And part of that really is what? Sometimes people say, oh, you're not being fair. And I'm saying, well, reality is that Microsoft is a dominant player in the world of OS. They're everywhere. If you were a bad guy, if you were a cyber thief, what are you going to go for? Low-hung fruit. Same thing. Why, do you, why does United States have so many compromised credit cards, right? We go back to, 19, what is it, uh, 2013 December, the Target breach, Home Depot, Michaels, the list goes on and on and continues to go on. We have a supply of users. <laughs> right, yeah, because it's so easy to grab the low-hung fruit, that simple mag stripe that we swipe our card is very easy to compromise at a point-of-sale terminal. And now they've introduced what? Chip and signature, they call chip and pin, 
but how many people honestly enter a pin when they put their credit card in the front of that credit card machine? Very few. There are a few stores now, finally. I've talked to one person so far that says, yeah, I have a pin that I enter, but it doesn't do it everywhere, it doesn't that. It's not happening wide scale. And yet probably 80% of all the point of sale terminals are now security compliant where they have the chip and pin. And that's really because of the liability shift that happened in the past. They don't want to take on the liability if there's a compromise. So the credit card companies forced it on down the chain to the mom and pops and all the retailers and everyone else to upgrade the security. The problem is they didn't force them to implement true chip and pin. And the pin is really another layer of security. And, and that, that really, that model goes through. And I share that with everybody when I talk to them and present, we can all identify with security in, in our homes. We don't want our homes or our apartments robbed. And what do we do? We've got not just a lock on the door, we've got a deadbolt, we've got a camera, we've got an alarm system, we've got alarm stickers, we've got cameras, the list goes on. Layers of security deter thieves to move on to an easier target. The same thing true is true with cyber thieves. When they're going after credit card, they don't wanna spend a lot of time in trying to decrypt encrypted files and guest pins and layers of security, but rather what are they gonna do? They're gonna target the guys that are just quick swipers. So that once that runs out, then they're gonna shift their site somewhere else, probably like online. Online will be the next big area where they're gonna exploit because it's a little harder to steal people's credit cards online than it is from a manual swiper where you just simply put malware on there. So always balancing that out and asking yourself in the process of your life, in your business, what are you doing that's secure and what is insecure, how you can reinforce it to make sure you're not the next victim is very, very important. Yeah, definitely. So Scott, you know, there's a statistic that many small businesses fail during the first year and then half that amount during the second year and so on. Where do you think entrepreneurs go wrong and what advice would you have for them? Oh, I get this question asked a lot. In fact, I was speaking at an entrepreneurial summit at the uh, college recently, Kane University, and, and that, that question came up even. Um, I think what happens with any startup, many people are not being realistic and what they think they need, they really don't need to succeed. And what do I mean by that? Do you need a fancy car? No. Big fancy office space to impress people or create a perception of success and go spend money for new furniture and so on and so forth. You, what you need to invest in more importantly is your employees. If it's yourself and you're hiring an employee, spend the time to hire the best and brightest employee, usually somebody smarter than you. I try to surround myself, and my father always taught me this. He said, surround yourself by people that are a lot smarter than you. If you have people smarter than you, you're gonna learn from them. They're gonna help your business grow, and then naturally it'll happen over time. You gotta be patient, you gotta invest wisely, I don't want to say be a cheapskate, but in a sense, people around here will often say, Scott, you're so cheap. Come on. You spend wisely when you need to spend that will help you recoup that and make money. So if you're investing in products, you're investing in people, you're investing in the company, and really your customer's future is your future. So you've got to balance those things out. So be as thrifty as you can. There's too many things that will allow you to make it easy so you don't have to do the things you don't want to do payroll and shredding services and the list goes on and on. HR thing, you can outsource everything. Your mailings, your, your calls, your this, your, everything is available to outsource. 
I try to say do as much as you can. And then as you grow, slowly outsource the things that really will hurt your profitability. It allows you to focus as much as you can until you can't focus anymore, then slowly grow out. These companies that do this, these logarithmic growth, they usually crash and burn after a while because they don't know what to do with a large amount of capital coming in. Most companies will go out there, they'll leverage themselves, they're looking to go public, which in some cases makes a lot of sense. In a lot of cases, now you've got to answer to shareholders every quarter, you're paying a ton of fees to remain a public company, and, and that's not cheap. So many companies that I've talked to, business owners, they sit there and go, oh, it's so expensive. And I spend half my time trying to keep the shareholders happy, the other half trying to keep the business afloat. That's tough. It's like you're doing too many jobs at once. If you could stay to your core, for us staying a small business, we could stay focused. You could see straight ahead what you're trying to do, what your objective is. If you're trying to innovate products, you could stay focused to that. And some of these distractions won't waste your time and cause you to be unprofitable. So I think balancing all those things, I always try to tell people, run mean and lean as long as you can. Try to work out of your house, rent modest office space if that's what you're starting. Um, do things that will save money because especially if you're looking to grow, you're looking to sell off your business, whatever the case may be, if you're looking to go public, most people when they're evaluating a business, they want to see some profitability. That's pretty impressive. It's rare that you find companies that are startups that could have record profitability so quick. Many of these companies, and I'm amazed, I look, you look at an Uber model and many others, they're really not profitable per se because they're heavily leveraged. They've got uh, 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 financing this, they're spending money here, they're trying to grow because they're in this huge growth model. So their market capitalization is tremendous. It, it, it's explosive. But the actual income that they're bringing in is kind of scary. You know, I, I look at Twitter, there's a good example. Uh, Twitter offers a great service, very, very powerful for, for the world of media, for business owners to share content and information and, and, and give somebody instant news alerts. But they haven't learned, in my opinion, how do you monetize that? So finding your area, your sweet spot, what's going to bring the money in is very, very important to sit down, spend more time doing that than worrying about the car you're going to drive or the furniture you got to get or your, your fancy digs and you'll probably do very well. That's great advice. Um, so Scott, I love what you're doing with your business and all the different uh, solutions that are coming out. Where do you see yourself taking this, let's say in the next five years? Well, we're at that difficult crossroad of, of there's a level of growth. There's excitement with some new products. Um, we are challenged like any other business. At some point, the capital gets tighter. And, and we certainly are experiencing that. We get larger orders now. It's harder because now you got to go out there and you got to make that difficult decision. Do I borrow money? Do I hire more people? Do I expand and open more offices? What do you do? So I try to keep the reins as tight as I can. In 45 years, we've never had to yet go to a bank or someone outside and borrow money which is good. And that's not traditional business. And I understand some businesses have to, it depends on um, each business use case, I guess, and what their product and what their market is. But I always tell people, try to hold off as long as you can without borrowing money because that'll erode profitability very, very quickly. So where I see where we are and where we're growing, the area of security has exploded. We're still gonna build our traditional test equipment for 4G technologies, 5G technology, setting up cell towers and things. 
That business is going more and more abroad as most of the build out, at least for 4G technologies is completed in, in the US. It, it's more uh, spread out through different global areas. But the security part is what's exciting me. We have some new security tools that we've been developing that are coming down the pipe. And that's on a global basis. Security is always a problem. And a lot of it has to do with wireless, IoT, and security and monitoring tools to hunt down threats. Because that area does not have a lot of companies that are focusing on that have tools that are competitive. So to me, that's a huge area in the next couple of years we're going to exploit. As mentioned earlier, distracted driving. Right now, we're on a little more than 5,000 trains monitoring for distracted operators. We're also now um, hitting the market for heavy machinery, giant Komatsus and Caterpillars and other large equipment used in the mining industry, cranes at steel mills, and the list goes on and on. Getting equipment there to monitor operators to make sure they're not distracted again by that almighty phone that's so enticing for us to glance down at a text or make a quick phone call or surf the internet. That area I see is gonna continue to explode. And as the other area I mentioned too, taking some of this technology, we're calling it the road hounds, monitoring actual drivers on the road to remind them to, hey, get off the phone. So there's a lot of other areas that I wanna start now exploring with complementary wireless technologies such as Bluetooth. Again, monitoring trains and buses, heavy machinery, cars, that are also using Bluetooth when they should be focused on the road. So the area, in my opinion, is gonna to continue to expand and other niches will continue to open up, which is the exciting part to me, all the unknown. So if you had to ask where we'll be exactly in five years, I don't exactly know, but I'm excited the path to get there because there's so many things that will get us there quickly and there'll be new discoveries in the process of developing these tools and technologies. It'll definitely be interesting to see how things pan out in the next five years. Yeah. It could be, it could go in a totally different direction. It, it could. Yeah. And sometimes it's, there, there are laws that are put into place that will help or hurt different businesses as well, um, which I find interesting. So uh, a lot of it, if there's a federal mandate here in the United States for certain things that changes the game overnight, we have this in, in the, in the world of prison, you're not allowed to, to, to bring a mobile phone inside of a prison. That's the law, it's a federal mandate. And they can increase fines, they can increase jail time. So prisoners always run that risk. Is it worth smuggling a phone in and getting caught? So that's where it helps businesses like ours because there's a lot of money put aside to use for security personnel to fight the problem. But you never know, that could change overnight too, good or bad. Yeah, exactly. Now, Scott, if, if you could rewind the clock, let's say 12 months, was something that you wanted to change, would you do anything differently? Wow. Um, I, I, I say yes and no. Yes in the standpoint, I, I found that I've come across a lot of concept and ideas that I wish I would have spent more time trying to innovate, trying to take to the next step, only to find 12 months later somebody got there before me and I go, oh, I had a great idea, the timing was off, we were busy with other projects. So that often is one thing, looking back in hindsight, you kick yourself and say, you know, when I feel that feeling that this is gonna work and this is gonna solve a huge problem, go with your gut and just go 100% ahead. And I always tell business owners that too, that hesitation and that distraction of trying to run a business and do your everyday things that pays the bills, 
sometimes that can hurt or stifle growth. What I tend to find is after hours is when my mind starts spinning. 2 a.m. at night when I can't sleep, I get an idea and I have to get on the computer and I do a search and I'm reading a paper that somebody on the other side of the world wrote on a particular problem. I'm putting that piece together with the problem, with this, with that, and an idea is formulated and boom, it clicks. The next day, I can't wait to get into the office. Guys, we got to try something. What about this, this, and that? And sometimes it's, oh no, you didn't think of this. And it's like, ah. Oh. And other times it's like, oh, you got something there. Let's try this out. You might have actually stumbled across something. Um, I did that recently. I was talking with the engineers. We were running into a speed issue. We're developing a pretty exciting uh, handheld Bluetooth scanner. And, and, and Bluetooth's not new. We have a scanner. I got one here. This one is um, a Mantis. It's about 15 years old. Great tool. But Bluetooth has evolved, and the standard from 1.0 to 5.0 now has changed so much. So we've developed one that's smaller, sleeker, color, touchscreen, more like our phone in a sense, coupled with a custom direction-finding antenna. It's a 2.4 gigahertz antenna, which will allow you to steer into Bluetooth activity. The other thing that Bluetooth has changed that I'm really excited about is there's also Bluetooth low energy. So if you have a smartwatch, like an Apple watch, if you have a Fitbit or, or so many other things in our car, Bluetooth low energy. Signals propagate pretty far and they use very little battery power. Well, those are critical threats to a nuclear facility, to a government agency. But more recently, what's been a big thing that crosses wireless, cybersecurity, and Bluetooth gas pumps. Bluetooth skimmers at gas pumps are put in and that allows the cyber thieves or physical thieves to steal your credit card when it gets put through the swiper. And then via Bluetooth, it will transmit that compromised data to somebody sitting in the car 50, 75 feet away. They're amassing hundreds or thousands of compromised credit cards and credentials, or some people put their ATM pin in it's getting that as well. So that's a huge, huge problem. There's hundreds and hundreds of cases throughout the US where these Bluetooth skimmers are being installed in gas pumps. The same is true with ATM machines. There's a little more than a million ATM machines throughout the US, incredible. Many of them, they're physically putting in these Bluetooth skimmers again and compromising all of our security, huge problem. What's the solution? We have a, a unit that's called the Blue Sleuth. It's a customized 2.4 gigahertz directional antenna. And to the point I was making before, we had one Bluetooth uh, engine in there spinning to search. Now what I did, I was thinking, wow, what if we could speed it up and kind of multitask and look for low energy and Bluetooth at the same time and put it through a combiner, splitter combiner, and couple that to a uh, antenna with some gain so we could hunt down pointed at a specific um, gas pump and see if we can get the ID out. And then we could see if there's actually Bluetooth in there. It's not supposed to be any Bluetooth in there. Same thing with an ATM. And we could demodulate that, look at the specific address, the ID and the signal strength, and you could wave it just like you would a Geiger counter and hone into a specific gas pump or ATM. And what can you do now? Find that threat. Simple tool. Problem was to be able to do both technologies at once we put the horsepower of two Bluetooth engines on there, combining them, splitting that, and direction finding. It just clicked. I mentioned to the engineers, and at first I think there was a little bit of thought, well, that's kind of a dumb idea. It's more money, it's more work. 
The next day I come in and one of our senior engineers, he goes, you know, Scott, I was thinking about that last night and that completely makes sense. It solves a problem. Customers don't want two units. They don't want to wait longer. They want it to scan simultaneously. You're optimizing that same special tuned antenna that we've designed and we could split the screen and show Bluetooth and Bluetooth low energy. Click on the one that you want to direction find that's a threat and you nail it. So sometimes thinking through the problem, coming up with maybe it's an out-of-the-box solution, maybe it's not even that innovative, but it just solves the problem. Those type of things I think are very important within a company. When you have layers of management, that doesn't work in a company. You have to be able to share ideas and, and say, hey, that's a dumb idea, that's a great idea, or build on someone else's idea. And I think when you put together a team of A players, it allows you to do that. And that's what gets exciting. We, we've taken projects. We did one large project for um, NASA. They came to us and we delivered the project in nine months. I asked them in the beginning, I said, can I ask you guys, well, why are you interested in coming to us? You're NASA. You've got departments uh, 10, 20 times bigger than us and budgets bigger than us. And they said, well, we need the specialized equipment designed. We need to have it installed in under one year. So we need a think tank that we can go to and challenge them and get it done. I said, how long would it take you guys to do it? And they said, over two years. Even though they would have 20 times as many people on it and more money to throw at it, it's because they're bigger. There's layers of management. So sometimes small businesses have a tremendous advantage. They can be agile. They can work together. They can collaborate. They can share and bounce ideas. They can come up with innovative ways to attack a problem and get it done instead of talking about it, writing memos and meetings and things. They just go off and do it. it. Still has to be a level of management there and control. But a lot of that comes from the team. If you have, a, again, a good team, it can happen. And I think that's the most important thing. Scott, who would be an ideal client for your company? It's pretty broad because, again, we have a broad product range. There's over 50 active products. We've done hundreds of designs over the years. But typically, we're selling to companies that have some need to measure and monitor the wireless. That's really where our expertise is. Now, it, it could pan something as, as a, any company, such as a Cisco, is a huge customer of ours. We've developed some specialized tools for them. Um, they even put our products on their website, such as our Wi-Fi tools. We developed some WiMAX tools, fixed and mobile for unique um, build out around the globe. And these are mostly um, pocket fixed to fixed or, or point to multi-point type of systems where they have high throughput and security is needed, where Wi-Fi doesn't cut it or license bands don't, and they'll have some hybrid technologies that might be a combination of license bands, and they mix in some other things there for secure applications. We'll develop test tools for that and propagation software so they could actually build out those networks. So certainly Cisco is a huge one there. Um, any carrier, because any carrier needs to measure and monitor their wireless coverage. Um, sporting arenas, buy a lot of our products. Imagine you have 100,000 fans. What are they doing? They're all on their phones. I was at a Yankee game the other day. And in fact, we even worked with some of the um, security uh, staff there in the past. And it's interesting how many people are watching the game, how many are watching the big screen, and how many are on their phone. Instagram and Snapchat and tweeting about it and all these other things that encompass your device and social media. 
taking selfies with pictures and the stadium in the background. We were doing it to my family. So it was really fun to experience that and see it, but how it's changed from when I was a little kid going to a Yankee game. You kind of just sat there and you, and you watched it. Now the audience is involved. You're tweeting and hashtags are popping up and it's engaging. So to make all that work, companies will buy our test transmitters. They'll do distributed antenna system build out and they'll rely on our tools to make sure that there's seamless coverage there. When you've got those 100,000 fans that are looking to consume alcohol and food, they're also looking to be on their phone and they want to make sure that Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile and Sprint are all working and there is seamless coverage no matter where you sit in that stadium. That is not easy to do. It takes a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of instrumentation and measurements behind the scenes well before a game ever kicks off. So to me, th there's another great example of sports entertainment and technology as our customer base. And there's hundreds of companies, and these are mostly small companies that will come to us by our tools to actually do those type of studies. Uh, another one that pops in my mind, uh, the product I talked about before is a squid. And a squid does a quick scan and again, they'll look for which carrier has the strongest signal coverage at a given spot. We were approached by the electric vehicle charger industry. Uh, we're all familiar with Tesla and all the uh, electronic vehicles out there. Well, there's a huge need for electric vehicle charging stations coast to coast to be built out. There's lined up a little more than 18,000 electrical contractors that are going to install all these electric vehicle chargers coast to coast. Inside all of those electric vehicle chargers are what? Cellular modems. They have wireless connectivity. And that's for what? The back end. All the credit card payments, uh, geolocation. Is that spot have a vehicle in it or is it free? How much electric use is there? So now it could tie in with uh, a smart grid and re-steer energy at peak demands and control the big uh, ecosystem of that. So again, we have a tool that's extensively used for that huge build out of electric vehicle chargers. So we get all of those companies and all the electrical supply chain that will call us and we're selling to them. So to me, that's very exciting because you don't know who your customer will be when you start development. Again, that was a crazy idea I had. This was back about five years ago. They challenged me. I got on a plane. I went out to California at the time. It was Coulomb Technologies. And they said, could you build an instrument to do this? Nobody's got it out there. And I said, I have no idea how we're going to do it. Let me think about it. I came back to the lab. We kicked around ideas a couple weeks. And guess what? We figured it out. We built it. And we've been selling it ever since. So sometimes, listening again very carefully, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Um, the same thing happened with the, with, with the rail industry. Um, a number of years ago, this was back in 2010, right almost into 2011, I got a call from my friends at LA Metro. Can you come on out here? We've got a huge problem, distracted operators. Do you have any way you could develop a tool to monitor if any operator texts or makes a phone call on a train? Why would you need that? And as you started doing research and study, that put us into a whole new industry just by a problem and we developed a solution for them. And now we're selling you know, thousands and thousands of these instruments, black boxes, a year that actually is addressing that specific problem. And that's blossomed two or three other areas that we now can exploit. So it's pretty exciting, the, the, the vast array of customers that will pick up the phone and call us. I, I get, we have a little covert solution that just detects cell phones for 
under $500 called Pocket Hound. We're now selling it on Amazon, our online store, and then direct to the public too. I often will get a cheating spouse that will call up and say, hey, my husband, my wife has got a second phone and they're talking to somebody. Do you have any tool that I could stick in my pocket and sneak up to see if they're in the bathroom there texting their their uh, secret admirer or whatever? And I was like, yikes. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so uh, we sell to a pretty interesting uh, spectrum of people uh, with this. Uh, the same thing, that same tool, a little covert cell phone detector. We were, we were contacted by a couple of universities and these professors were furious. They said, the number of kids that keep cheating on these exams is driving me nuts. We don't know what to do. We can't stop them. Do you have any solution for that? So that pocket hound got adapted. Now the professors or proctors of the exam put it in their pocket. They'll walk around during the exam and it simply will vibrate in their pocket more and more as they get close to a phone that's texting. And that's what kids do. They'll pull out their phone, they'll keep it down here in their pocket or under their skirt, and they'll text, phone a friend, and say, hey, what's the answer to such and such? And they'll get it back, and they're cheating on the exam. Well, now professors can fight back. At first, we started out, we, we thought it was kind of a joke. And we, we sold a couple here, sold a couple here. And then one country called me up, and they placed an order for 700 units, and they placed it throughout their whole school system. I was blown away. And that same type of thing keeps happening. So what came out as a, a crazy idea from a, a professor that I listened to carefully, we then took to the next level and developed the technology, perfected it. So problem solution. And now we're selling thousands of these and continue to do so, which is very exciting. And we're stopping cheap too. <laughs> Talking about exciting, I mean, this is a very exciting topic. I mean, security is something that's on everybody's mind. And we actually got many questions from the audience. So our first question is from Mary Kindulo in Rockland County, New York. And Mary says that rumor has it that outside parties attempted to manipulate the recent presidential election race. Who do you think is responsible for not catching this? That's a tough one. Um, really, unfortunately, the, the government needs to do a lot more when it comes to cybersecurity and monitoring. Uh, fortunately, if you look at the, the election, and even many people have focused in on the actual machines where people are casting their ballots and saying that they're hacked, they're compromised, this and that, the, the truth be it, election machines really aren't plugged into the internet. It's very hard to hack. Are they hackable? Yes, everything's hackable. Nothing is 100% secure. So people have to be realistic. You can't create a, a, a system of voting and um, everything else that's going to cost a, a million dollars per machine. The country would go, would go out of uh, deeper debt than they already are, I guess you could say. Um, I think when political parties play games back and forth and hack and try to cause compromise, I feel it's more of a disruption. They want people to question the legitimacy of a, of a democratic process or, or a particular candidate or, or whatever the case may be. So we try to stay out of the world of politics. However, even last year I was in Vegas and I went on Fox and I, I was asked similar questions about uh, the DNC hacking and uh, you know, did Russia do it? Did they get in there and hack everything and do this and that? Yeah, I think, I think they got in there and they caused some havoc. Now, who actually did it? it it's usually not 
it's not Vladimir Putin or anybody like that that's doing it. It goes down the chain and they carefully hire a group of cybersecurity hackers to go in there and meddle and cause problems and disrupt the process. To be fair, does the U.S. do anything to cause havoc or, or, or cause challenges to other countries as far as hacking? Most people will never talk about that. So maybe to, to keep the scales equal, I usually say, yeah, they do. I mean, look at Stuxnet. Stuxnet is, is a prime example um, where a nuclear uh, a facility was attacked there in Iran to mess up the centrifuges. And it's one of the, the first large-scale cyber war attacks that was deployed primarily between the United States and Israel against Iran, which is kind of ironic when you look at the big picture. So many people will kind of say, well, that was for security. It's true. So really, hacks happen between all different governments, different agencies. Um, there's hackbacks where somebody hacks this particular government agency. They're going to hack them right back. That's happening now. A lot of the things with uh, even North Korea, what do we see? All these different tests for nuclear launches. Do you notice how many of them have failed? Probably safe to say it's because of some of these specific hacking efforts that the United States and other governments have, have, have targeted um, successfully against their nuclear program and putting them years behind of where they want to be. So it's a very concerning topic. Um, Unfortunately, it's, it's very political too, which means it's, it's very hard to see that clear line in the sand. Another thing that's very important to realize, and I think people don't get this um, fundamental thing, cyber hackers are very smart. And what they do when they will place malware, when they will try to hack into someone else's system is they will take remnants of other malware, malicious software, and they'll place it into the core software. What does that do? So they could take certain phrases, certain code style and structure that maybe a hacker in Romania uses and plug it in, or maybe somebody from North Korea and plug it in. And now when they're looking post-hack, who's behind this? And they're looking through the code. They're like, well, it could be from Russia. Ooh, maybe it's Romania. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's somebody else. We don't know because they mix it all up. And at the same time, they'll bounce it around through different IP traffic. So it's really hard to find where did it originate? What's the source of it? Um, so they're great at disguising this malicious software. In the past, it was very easy to hunt it down and track it. And now what are they doing? A lot of the most recent hacks to, to me is the scariest thing is compromised NSA hacking tools got out there in the wild west and are being sold in the dark web hacker to hacker. And now they're modifying the code so they can do different ransomware attacks, the WannaCry, wanna and all these other variants that are popping up everywhere, and it's very difficult to track. The only thing that most people can say is, well, the NSA are the guys that authored it. <laughs> they're not the guys that are putting it out there, but the hacker community, they just grabbed that, modified it, and they're putting it out everywhere. So people have to be very diligent, especially what they click on, what they download, what they put on a USB stick from computer to computer, because that's how that stuff spreads very, very rapidly. Our next question is from Sarit Lotem, president of Lotem Design in Bergen County, New Jersey. As a small business owner, what cyber threat should concern me the most? Oh, great, great question, first of all. I, I always start with this. What's inside your building? 
your own staff, your own people. Uh, why do I say that? What's the result of most cyber threats? Um, complacency, laziness, lack of training, poor password management. Year after year, you hear the joke and people kind of laugh and giggle about it. The number one password is password one, two, three. The number two password is password. The number three is admin. It's still happening. It's getting better. People are getting educated, but it really hasn't changed. Yet, if we could change people and their behavior, we'll be more secure. So most of the things that I encourage people within a company organization are in your own control. And that's part that, that I think is very important. There's many companies out there, know before, is a great company that provides cybersecurity training and awareness. They do simulated phishing attacks. Um, they, they do simulated things to see if you're gonna fall victim for ransomware. How far will you go at disclosing your, your login credentials? What will you click on if a pop-up happens? Those things for a very affordable price, you can have implemented in your company. And most of it's through the cloud, it's secure, and it helps you see how secure your firm is or how insecure your firm is. So I encourage people to employ best practices, teach your employees, train your employees, because that's where most of the things happen. Social engineering, you, you can get into any company. And I, I, I've chatted with uh, my buddy, Kevin Mitnick, and he even performed identity theft on myself at one uh, event that we were at. When he was given a keynote, he brought me up and showed how easy it is to perform identity theft on somebody just by having their name. That was scary. So basic things that you can do to protect yourself. And I get into a lot of that in my book, Hacked Again, how you can be careful about your digital footprint, training your employees within a company, not putting too much information out there on social media. So a hacker can use that against and attack your company. So start within your company. The insider threat is really a big part of it. And you got to counter that first before spending a ton of money and doing all these other things. Our next question is from Joe Russo, Vice President Accelerated Technologies in Jupiter, Florida. Joe says, I've heard a lot about cybersecurity and how it is such a growing industry. What do you think that the man will be regarding job opportunities in the cybersecurity sector? Uh, job opportunities right now are endless. There's well over a million jobs that are unfulfilled. It could be in the government sector, private sector. Uh, th there's not enough teachers, professors that can teach basic cybersecurity. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, I'm constantly asked by people, a lot of people even have sent me their resumes, and I'll push it out to two or three colleagues. Boom, they land a job very quickly, especially if they have any expertise in the world of cyber. Um, it is important that people do get proper training, that people have a passion for it. Um, there's a great program down in Washington, D.C., Hack Educate. Um, I've been working with those guys a little bit, and they have a very interesting formula. What they do is they have a seven-week hands-on, so your hands are on the keyboard. You're really learning how to hack, and they have seven different modules. At the end of that, they will place you in a top cybersecurity company. The cost to be in the program is zero. That to me is exciting. So really the, the employer that hires you has to pay obviously a finder's fee there. But so they're taking the best of the best of course, they're training them and they're placing them. Huge success rate. 
um, and it's Hack Educate. Really great group there. And universities have got some good programs too. I'm working uh, with Kane University in Union, New Jersey, and uh, I'm on the Cybersecurity Advisory Board helping to put together a really comprehensive cybersecurity program. They just put together a, an incredible building loaded with the latest and greatest technology. So they have cutting edge teaching methods. Uh, they're doing things a little bit different where a lot of the stuff is now from your home. It's done online. It's not all where you have to have a physical presence there because they really want to have a larger footprint in teaching and bringing in expert speakers that you can't normally physically take from point A to point B. But now you can make it more of an interactive class, which is really exciting. And I notice other universities are starting to follow suit there and, and making it more exciting. But, but the education side is, is truly endless there. And there's a lot of specialties within cybersecurity if you're looking for a job too. So you really want to focus in, are you in the financial sector, healthcare, there's a, a huge need there, corporate, um, whatever the case may be, make sure whatever your skill set is that you stick with your core expertise when you're looking for a job and then learn cyber. Uh, SANS is a great area to go to. They've got courses throughout the United States and you can get a, a certificate in a particular discipline within that niche in cybersecurity. A lot of colleagues have done that and that's really well. And there's other programs as well. So you don't always have to get a two-year or four-year master's or whatever the case may be in cybersecurity. Sometimes a focused degree in a narrow discipline is really just as good. But the single most important thing, you got to love it. You got to be a techie. You got to be a hands-on guy. Then you'll succeed in that field. If you're just trying to go from being whatever, an accountant, and you want to jump into cybersecurity because you realize tomorrow you can make $200,000, may not be a good fit. It's going to be a tough one for you. You got to love math, science, and, and, and the challenge of things, and the weird hours, and strange people, but it's very rewarding if you like it. Yeah, and wow, I had no idea that they actually had training like that that was no cost, and they place you. Yeah, it's really a great program. They're very successful. They're taking it to scale out of Washington, and they're going to have it uh, next in the, in the New Jersey, New York area, California. They're hitting all the major cities, of course, and exploding from there. Exciting stuff, though. Yeah. Well, can you just say the name of it again for everybody? To yeah, hear? Hack Educate. I think it's hackeducate.com. I think it's ha at HackED is the Twitter handle there. You can get more information or anybody could certainly ever, if they want any uh, further information just from this uh, little segment, they could always email me directly. I'd happy to, to, to send it or send it your way, either, either way that works. Um, and my email is scott at B as in boy, V as in Victor, and then system spelled out plural, just like our website.com. And I'll shoot over the information. That's great. And I'll put that in the show notes so people can just click on it and go right to it. Wonderful. So our next question is from Allison Friedman, co-founder of Village Marketing Company in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Allison asks, what's a piece of popular technology that people think is secure but actually isn't? Wow. Um, one thing that just pops into mind when you say that, a lot of people think and assume that their traditional virus and malware is great and they're safe. And it's good to have, I don't wanna say it's not. Probably, probably stops about 15 to 20% of the junk coming into your computer, the bad stuff. Uh, what does that tell you though? That means that 80, 85% of the bad stuff is still getting onto your computer. So you really gotta be careful. 
Um, one of the later, uh, more emerging threats that people are starting to become aware of that I'm kind of um, scared about, but excited about, because again, it's a problem solution, is if you're familiar with the term called a keylogger. So most of us will go on our mobile device, our tablet, our mobile phone, laptop, or maybe even our computer, and we'll type in, we'll log into our bank account or our stock portfolio or anything else financial. But what we have to be careful of is a lot of the later variants of malware have what's called a key logger. And what that simply does is every keystroke that you tap on your phone, your tablet, your keyboard, it's recording that. And it's doing it in the background. So you don't even see it. It's disguised in a, in a subdirectory on your computer or stored in the memory. And then it's sent out to the bad guy. And what they can do then is put it through a piece of software that will then scarf out and basically pull your login credentials, your password, your name, your security challenge questions. They see what site you visited. And it's kind of an automatic software, automated process. So they don't have to really think. They just take the file, throw it in there, and it puts up a nice broken down ASCII common delimited list so you can see all the important information that they need to compromise your accounts. So they get all the key information. So the question is, oh no, what do I do? What, how do I stop a keylogger, this type of malware from getting onto my computer? Well, now they have what's called anti-keyloggers. And what that does is it bypasses the normal route when you type a key, it actually encrypts every single keystroke before they're able to log it. So basically, when they do log it, they're getting gibberish logged and they can't do anything with it. That's kind of exciting technology. Most people I talk to have no clue. When I talk, I say, well, have you ever used an anti-keylogger? I use it on my laptop, my mobile phone. People don't use it. So something that you should consider, a company that, and there's a, probably a dozen companies that offer different grades of keyloggers. One I personally use that I really like, a company called uh, Strikeforce. They're right in Edison, New Jersey, and, and they've got a product called Guarded ID and uh, Mobile ID. One for your mobile devices, one for your, your um, computer. And it's not that much. I think it's under $30 or something, a copy of the software. You can get a couple seats for it. You put it on your device. And now the beauty of it, if there is a key logger that you ever ex accidentally get, ends up on your device, they can't compromise your uh, information. And that's what's really important. It's all encrypted. Our next question is from Madeline Davis, creator of the Stress-Free Family and the Parenting System in New York City. Mm. Madeline writes, as a person in the parenting space and a mother to three, I'm most concerned about how people who don't know our kids are accessing their mobile numbers and sending them texts, engaging them into conversations. The text looks like they're coming from someone they know and get increasingly flirty. If it doesn't get shut down by a parent, these texts could end up with the kids meeting them someplace or sending picture, pictures, et cetera. How can we block texts from these people? Uh, great question. Tough. It's tough to block texts. What I do is I look at what technology will make it harder for them to get to you. Here's something that you might want to try instead. This is what I've done. And again, I have two young kids at home too and had to combat the same problem. Uh, I did a lot of research on all these different chatting, texting uh, platforms, uh, and we're familiar with WeChat, and, and there's so many of them. Some have end-to-end -end encryption they've added because of all the problems. Some do a lot of monitoring, but only limited so they can prevent some of the stuff that, that you're talking about. One that you might want to try, it's called Squeal Lock. Very interesting. It does not 
a whole bunch of bells and whistles. It's a very basic um, application. Uh, right now it's free. I downloaded it and used it on my phone. And what it does is it does not ask you for your mobile number. You notice all these other apps and chatting platforms all require you to provide your mobile number, which they store secretly and supposedly don't divulge. If you read all the fine print and the T's and C's, guess what? They can have access to your phone, your contacts, and many other things unless you explicitly tell them, no, you can't have this and you change the agreement, which no one ever does because you can't read it. It's such fine print. Um, try Squeal Lock. It's free. It's easy to use. It's very basic, but it's completely encrypted, end-to-end -end encryption. And after the message is sent, it wipes it. So it's never stored on your device. It's not stored on a server or a remote server. It's encrypted and you never have to divulge your phone number. You create a unique name and that way it's truly secure. See, I've tried CyberDust and, and they're good and they all have their level of security. Squeal Lock seems to be up there with the most secure and um, most difficult to have anybody from the outside trying to text your kids and do all these other scary things that the wackos are doing these days. Sounds almost like a Snapchat for texting. Exactly. It's similar to that. It, it is similar to that. Um, but, but it works. It's simple to use. You can get on there and get off there. And every generation is different. Kids love Snapchat. I find Snapchat a little bit strange, but I see the appeal to it to a younger generation. But there they have that ability to make it disappear after some time, like CyberDust and many of these others. What, what, what's starting to happen is people are realizing that sometimes what you say, what you text, the pictures you post, they have permanency to them. And that's really alarming. So basically I call it your digital footprint. And that digital footprint, and I talk a lot about this in my book, um, it's dangerous because once it's out there, it's hard to retract and take back. It's too late. It's out there in the world of ones and zeros somewhere. So some of these newer applications where it's immediately wiped and destroyed and not stored on any device or server is very important. Our next question is from Joan Groom, president of Ridgewood Chamber of Commerce in Ridgewood, New Jersey. So Joan said, it seems to me that there needs to be a plan for cybersecurity for today immediately and a long range plan to protect people in the future. But how many changes will have to happen in between? A lot. <laughs> and, and honestly, I was speaking the other week at a university and uh, at Kane University, um, Dave Weinstein, who is, I guess, works right under uh, Governor Christie, recently appointed as New Jersey's CTO, he was posed with a similar question. And he said, not, not enough things are being done, but more needs to be done. We'll never get 100% of these things to be secure. And that's, that's one thing everybody has to come to terms with. You will never be 100% secure. Push that aside. Now do something about it. And, and most of it is educating people telling them that they can take some things into their own hand to keep themselves, keep their families safe, keep their businesses safe. And a lot of it's education and best practices. Once we start getting away from these, these stupid passwords that are too simple to hack and we control our security and put things in place, not putting too much out on social media. Uh, one big thing I always share with people is, um, if you go on social media and they ask you for your birthday and you're setting up your Twitter account, let's say, don't be honest with it. Put misleading information out there. That way, if your identity is ever compromised and someone goes to your account and looks at your birthday, 
they're going to have a different one than the birth date on your LinkedIn account. And they'll put it in and it'll stop the identity theft there. Or if they're trying to take credit uh, out in your name or whatever the case may be. When, when I go to the doctor's office, I, I was denied once I got there. I gave them my insurance card, my copay and everything. And they said, you got to put your social security number down here. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not stupid. And they said, oh, we, we, we can't uh, see you then today. I said, you have to. The law says you have to. You can't require a social security number. And I said, everybody gives it. And I said, you got 10,000 patients there. You're telling me every patient was dumb enough to put their social security number down? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, what do you do with that social security number after that? Well, we give that paper to a girl. She photocopies it. She takes it home, enters it into a database. And we put one file copy here and she keeps another file copy and electronic copy there. And then we back it up. I said, so now you got four places where 10,000 people's social security number resides. I said, I'm not going to give you that. I said, call your, your manager and, and ask them if they're going to deny me coverage because that's illegal. They came back and they said, you know what? You're the only person that's ever questioned this. You're not required to put your social security and we can't deny you, deny seeing you. We're sorry. Just put a line through that and then you can go into the office. <laughs> so, so a lot of things, again, it's in our control, but we're so trusting we're so innocent. We're, well, I got a cold. They're going to tell me like, if I don't fill that out, they're not going to see me. So then the question is, why do they require you to put your social security number? That's what intrigued me. When I left, I started doing some research. Guess what? When they go to bill you and you don't pay the bill and it gets put into collections, it's 10 times easier to get somebody's money if they have your social security number. So again, what does it come down to? The almighty dollar convenience and bill collecting, not your security. It's convenience for them compromising your security. So you gotta really be careful before you put out too much information because it's gonna affect you or gonna affect your family or your small business. Wow, you know, some of these things you just never think about. Yeah. Great. Scott, what do you like doing for fun? Well, I do have a cabin an undisclosed place that is up on the top of a mountain on a lake. And I go there and I get away from everything else. In other words, it's, it's non-technology. <laughs> so I, I don't have phones and connections to the outside world. And it gives you a little bit of a sense of security, privacy, uh, and you can enjoy nature. I can write there. I can relax, spend time with the family, the kids go swimming, go fishing, go sailing. I enjoy a lot. So I guess a lot of the outdoor type of things get away from technology, even though I love technology. And I'll admit oftentimes I'm writing about technology there. So it's probably not a, a true escape, but indirectly it is. Yeah. Nature can be very therapeutic. Right. Right. Scott, I know you're a busy guy. I'm going to let you go. Uh, just before we do, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Wow. Uh, I, I certainly email. I always welcome people as crazy as it sounds. People say, oh, you're too busy to answer. But you know, I do try to answer people. If they have a cybersecurity question, problem, frustration, I can't always get back immediately. So sometimes it'll take me a little bit of time because I'm always behind on emails and catching up, but they could always email me. Again, it's scott at B as in Bravo, V as in Victor, and the word systems spelled out.com. They can go to my website, scottshober.com, and again, they could submit a form and all that other stuff. I can get back to them that way as well. I have information on my book. There's free downloads for tips, cybersecurity tips that I do provide. Uh, I do have a YouTube channel for a weekly uh, cybersecurity, two-minute cybersecurity briefing. 
that I put out. They, please uh, subscribe to that, and we welcome any comments there. And again, hopefully you could join me on one of these segments at, at this end. I'd love to have you. Um, that would be great. Twitter is um, it's at Hacked Again Book. Also, my company is at BV Systems, and then myself at Scott BVS. So those three Twitter handles, you could always DM me there or talk to me there, and then LinkedIn and all the other ways that we all connect on the world of social media. I'm pretty much on them all, and I finally uh, even joined the world of uh, Instagram there. I'm out there one way or another. We can connect, I'm sure. If you search my name, you'll probably find me somehow. Great. And yeah, we'll get that in the show notes so people can just connect right to you. Absolutely. Yep. Scott, do you have any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, I always tell people that security is in your control. It's in my control. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't always take everything that you read on the internet at face value or what somebody tells you. Do your own research try some of the different things that you can do without spending a lot of money. I, I, I'm always dealing with people that are perplexed. What should I spend? I was compromised. My credit card was compromised. This, that, my checking account, so on and so forth. I've been through it all. I've had all of them compromised. Most of the things that I've implemented are best practices that have stopped the breaches, the hacks, the credit card compromises, the identity theft, the Twitter account, the DDoS, all those things by taking control of it and thinking security and not compromising it and being complacent about it. So trying to make that, that, that common balance between, again, when I go back to security and convenience, stop and ask yourself, do I really need to subscribe to this and give away my email? Maybe the answer is yes, but realize that may compromise your security a little bit. Set up a, a fake email, maybe it's a Gmail, a, a Yahoo, and realize whatever goes through that is being monitored, can easily be compromised, and then use a more secure one for secure communication. So control, take control of your security, that's what I tell people. It's really in your hands. You could prevent probably 90% of all the compromise. The other 10%, there's nothing you can do about it, it's gonna happen, but at least you could say you gave it a fighting chance and made the hackers work at it. Great. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom. I really enjoyed having you. Oh, great. Hey, thank you for the time. Thank you for having me on. And uh, again, great questions that were posed by uh, your, your listeners there. I really appreciate that.